this little thing was titled uh, Things Our Mothers Taught Us, right? Things Our Mothers Taught Us. Uh, one guy said, my mother taught me logic. If everyone else jumped off a cliff, would you do it too? How many of you have ever heard that at some point in your life? Yeah, that's like the standard parent answer, right? And so I would always say, yes. No, I didn't. Uh, my mother taught me genetics. You are just like your father. My mother taught me anticipation. Just wait until your father comes home, right? My mother taught me religion. You'd better pray that will come out of the carpet. My mother taught me the circle of life. I brought you into this world and I can take you out. An all-time favorite thing my mother taught me is justice. One day you will have kids and I hope they're just like you. You'll understand, right? Well, that's just a short list. And my guess is that some of you have said that or heard that on more than one occasion. That's just a short list of all the things that our mothers taught us, right? Well, we've been in a series for a few weeks and uh, we're going to pause today and pause that series and kind of uh, honor today on Mother's Day. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 10. Uh, we'll get there in just a minute. Luke chapter 10 uh, for a message entitled The One Thing You Must Do. The One Thing you must do. So today's going to be incredibly practical. Uh, we're just going to walk through some things based on this passage that even if you have been in church or it's been a while since you've been in church, uh, you probably get the gist of this idea of the story in this parable that we're going to walk through this morning. So it's not something hard to understand. It's just something hard to remember. It's something hard to realize the impact that it has. Uh, what we're going to talk about that one thing you must do. When I think of the American family, uh, one word comes to mind. It's pressure. Uh, there's so much pressure going on. There's so much stress uh, that's involved. And there, for some folks, there's financial pressure. They just can never seem to get ahead of the curve uh, financially, just kind of living week to week. Uh, for some families, it's the pressure of trying to make a blended family work, how, how it's supposed to work or how we think it's supposed to work. Uh, for many families, it's keeping up with the Joneses, even though statistics tell us that the Joneses are probably broke anyway, right? But there's still that pressure there of wondering how do we compare and how does that look and, and all those things. And so there's pressure for your children to, to do well and be successful. Uh, for, for them to be great athletes or great scholars or, or gifted musicians. And there's almost this unsaid pressure that if your kids uh, aren't performing this certain level, then surely something is wrong with your parenting. I mean, is that the best you can do? Is that all you can produce? Is that all you can squeeze out of your kids? And so what's, what's wrong with you as a parent? There's just all of this pressure uh, going on. There's incredible pressure in the schedules we keep. Uh, we have these schedules that we try to run, but if we're honest this morning, our schedules end up running us. I love that in the little thing there. Uh, thank you for being the taxi driver, right? How many of you moms ever felt like at some point in time that, that you live to drive people around? Yeah, lots of you have felt that way. And there's minivans pulling in and it's like a pop can. Just peel the top off and it's just kids running everywhere, right? But it's just pressure. I've got to keep up and I've got to do this and I've got to perform and I've got to make sure my kids do this or that, you know, it's a reflection on me. And there's just so much pressure going on uh, in families. All right. Now. If you've not been in church or it's been a while, uh, you may not know this. Uh, the, the Bible is actually not written in English. The Bible in the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, okay? And in the New Testament, it was written in Greek. Now, the problem is this, is that sometimes uh, when the translators were trying to find, uh, the, to take that Greek word and perfectly translate into English and to capture the, the meaning, it, it's almost impossible. And so there are some words where they've tried to translate them over that they just can't fully capture. And so they, they do the best they can. And one of those words they've struggled with translating from Greek perfectly is the word evil. Like, like they don't know, like they say, this is kind of the idea, but we can't fully capture when we tra lose something when we translate in English. So translators uh, have and scholars have working on that for years and years trying to get it uh, the right way. But here's here's some good news. They have finally concluded that the perfect English translation has been found for the Greek word for evil. Right. So groundbreaking research here this morning. You're welcome. 
The, the word translated perfectly for the Greek word evil in English language is pronounced, ready? It's pronounced Pinterest, right? Can I get an amen this morning? Like, like for every mom, it's like, listen, Pinterest is a reminder of how that someone else is more crafty and more clever and more organized than I am. Like, it's just a tangible reminder of what you're not doing right, what you could be doing better and what every other else mom, it appears they're doing. Now, guys, you may not hang out much on Pinterest. so You may not want to admit that you do. OK, and so you may not, not know what I'm talking about, the pressure that comes from this. And so you can just go home and look it up today. It's uh, www.mymomisbetterthanyourmom.com. OK, and so you can just see all the things that your wife should be doing that she's not doing, but that she feels like she's not doing. And so when I thought about Mother's Day, I thought, gosh, what, what is the one thing I want to speak about that every mom has to have? And so we're going to walk through that in Luke 10. But then I also thought about what, what is the thing they're competing against? And it's just this idea if I'm not I, I could be doing better, like, like I'm not doing everything I should be doing or someone else is doing it better. And, and uh, so I, I this idea of Pinterest, like that's the picture of, of like what it should really look like. And I'm not there yet. And so it's just a, a tangible reminder of my failure every time you get on there you can kind of do that. So so I was thinking about this idea of Pinterest and this whole idea of this. The standard of perfection that, that, you know, most people just it's not real. And so I was thinking about that on Monday. So I took my notes. And so imagine my delight yesterday when I'm on the Internet and like every major news uh, uh, source has an article that they posted uh, yesterday. And, and the title of the article was called Pinterest Pressure. And so if I, I just screamed out of my house. It's true. I'm really a prophet. Right. And so I just like I yell, what's, what's wrong down there? Don't worry. And so let's what the article wrote. Here's what this, this lady wrote. It's a little lengthy, but it, but it captures exactly what I think is going on and the stress that moms feel and the perfection and all this. Kind of, listen to what it says. She writes this. She said, for many moms, social media is both a blessing and a curse. We go to sites like Pinterest and Facebook for connection and inspiration. But all too often, the beautiful images of domestic harmony make us feel inadequate. In our exclusive today's survey of 7000 U.S. mothers, 42 percent so that they sometimes suffer from Pinterest stress, the worry that they're not crafty or creative enough. Symptoms include staying up until three and clicking through photos of exquisite handmade birthday party favors, even though, you know, you're going to end up buying yours from the dollar store. It also it tricks you into thinking, uh, one mom said that everyone is actually milling their own flour and baking their own bread, except you. Uh, one, one mom said this, uh, she actually said it's just become such a phenomena. She started a blog and the actual title of the blog is called Pinterest fail. And so it's like all these moms who saw something on Pinterest and they were going to top it. They were going to equal it and they were going to do it and just totally explode in their face. It was a total failure. And they've captured on a site now called Pinterest fail. Anderson said, uh, the author said she's heard other moms say uh, self-depreciating things like this. Well, it was just a little party I threw. Uh, nothing I put on Pinterest. As if throwing an enjoyable kids party, it's like it's not enough anymore. Like if you loved your kids more, you would do what they did on Pinterest. And so this is this whole idea of perfection. And she said, it's so easy to get depressed. You start feeling like your entire life has to be like a magazine all the time. Aiming for magazine or Pinterest worthy perfection all the time is an impossible goal, especially when you have kids. Striving perfection is a major source of stress for moms. One in four moms told the surveyor that the pressure they put on themselves to be perfect is the top cause of their stress. And so what one blogger said this, here's what she wrote a blog, and the title was called Stop the Pinsanity. I just love that title. Stop the Pinsanity. And she said we have to lower expectations. Being a parent is so physically and emotionally and mentally exhausting to add 17 layers of perfection and cutesiness. 
I don't know of any study that ever said kids turn out better if they have rainbow colored birthday cakes. She said, why are we doing this to ourselves? And then she concludes this. She says, I poured over oodles of pins one night, feeling slightly inadequate. I started to realize that while I may think of myself as Martha Stewart on occasion, my kids don't want or need Martha Stewart. They just want me to be their mom. And then the lady said, I decided to let myself off the hook to allow myself not to succumb to one more pressure to be perfect. Is that not a picture of what's going on in our families so many times? Just this idea of how are we measuring up and, and I'm not getting it right and I should be more creative or more crafty and I could do more and, and I want to do this. And it's just this whole idea that you just can't do it all. And listen, here's the reality. You can't do it all. But here's the good news. It's not all worth doing. Do you realize that? That at the end of the day, there are some things that will make a difference in your kids and in eternity. And there are some things in the day, it just doesn't matter. And so you can't do it all. But the good news is it's not all worth doing. And so when I boiled it down this morning, I thought, what is the one thing that every parent uh, has to do? They have to get right. Okay. well, what is that one thing that we must do? And it just comes naturally more often if we're honest to moms. It's the idea of expressing genuine compassion. It's looking down at someone and realizing that you love them so much that their needs are more important than their needs. It's sacrificing them. It's expressing the compassion towards them that God has towards us. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 10. Very familiar passage. Again, even if you don't know the story. You got the idea of the title, you probably know the gist of it. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's the greatest picture of compassion probably in all of the New Testament. OK, and so you can't do everything right. But this one thing you must do. Luke chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 25. We'll look down this morning uh, down through verse 37. It says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answered and said, he goes in this parable. He said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down the road and when they saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And so he went to him and bandaged up his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him and whatever more you spend. When I come again, I will repay you. And so which of these three do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Well, this morning, again, I'm just going to be incredibly uh, practical this morning. So we're just going to look at two things uh, that the, the compassion requires based on the, these principles here found in this parable. All right. So the two things that compassion requires, then we're going to come back and visit and say, hey, listen, compassion is powerful. It changes people. When they grew up in a place there wasn't compassion, it shapes them negatively. It's an incredibly influential, powerful thing. And so if it's so important, then why is it missed sometimes? Why is it not uh, exalted? Why does it just get crowded out sometimes? So we're going to wrap up this morning, kind of look at three uh, compassion killers. All right. So first off, what does compassion require? What does it actually require according to the principles in this passage? Well, compassion requires, first off, a willingness to do things that are not natural. It's a willingness to do things that are not natural. 
that, that when I see a need, listen, we're just honest this morning, that when we see a need, oftentimes we just try and look the other way. You know, we see that person out there, they may they have genuine needs, they may not have genuine needs. We're not sure, we're not sure if it's a scam. And so the best thing we often do is to try not to make eye contact. Or we find out someone's going through a struggle and we just say, you know what, I've got enough problems of my own. I'm not going to get involved in that. I don't want to put my nose in their business, those kinds of things. And so often, if we're honest this morning, the most natural thing is just to keep on going. It's just kind of turn the, it's just to kind of play dumb and go on about your own life and all of its problems and all of the stress because you've got enough stress going on. You don't need to solve someone else's problems. It's but compassion. When it gets a hold of my heart, guess what? It moves me to do things that naturally I would not do left to my own selfish desires. You see, that's exactly what's going on here in the text. To, to say that it was a natural thing for this good Samaritan to stop and, and to help this person. Listen, it was the most unnatural thing that could have taken place. Let me give you an idea why uh, from their culture. Look at uh, chapter 10 again, verse 33, what he says. In verse 33, it says, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him. Now, he had a choice right there, did he not? Like he could have totally made eye contact and just said, well, I, you know, I'm just, and just kind of kept going, just kind of glanced in his direction. Just, well, I didn't really know the, the depth of his. No, no, no. This says when he saw him, verse 33, he had compassion. Now, we understand this man that's probably wounded was probably a Jew. They're in Israel at this time. And the Samaritans and the Jews, listen, they hated each other. They absolutely hated each other. Matter of fact, it would have been more natural in the context of that first century culture and the hatred between Jews and Samaritans if he would have spit on him. Like if he would have stopped by and finished the guy off, if the guy was in his wounded state, if he would have just checked his pockets or his tunic or his robe, right? And just said, listen, uh, I'm going to take everything. Listen, it would have been more natural if he would have come by and carjacked his camel, right? I mean, just like they hated each other. Like they just, they couldn't stand each other. Why is that? Let me give you a little history lesson this morning, like a little one minute New Testament history lesson this morning. At one point in time, the Jews were divided up into two kingdoms and their kingdoms became uh, taken into captivity, one by the Babylonians and one by the Assyrians. And the northern kingdom that was taken into captivity was overtaken by Gentiles or non-Jews. And so what happened is this, after a period of time, uh, the offspring of the Gentiles and the offspring of the Jews, they started to intermarry. And so the Jews became furious at this because they felt that they were God's chosen people. And when their offspring had started intermarrying, they said, you're polluting our population. You're destroying our spiritual heritage by intermarrying. And so they felt that this was incredibly, you know, just destroying who they were. They were the chosen people of God, the pure Jews in the favor of God. And so this idea that the, the Samaritans, which is a Gentile group, would come in and intermarry and ruin all that. Listen, there's just this hatred for these people in our, in our current culture, it would be the equivalent of someone from a, a foreign country being a devout Muslim and moving to America and then writing home or calling home or going back home and visiting. Say, hey, listen, I've got great news. I've recently married an American Christian. Are you happy for me? Obviously, the answer is no. We're ashamed. You've destroyed who we are as a family. That's the context of this passage. And so for the fact that knowing that history and knowing that culture and knowing that hatred between, listen, for him to stop what he was doing and to exercise compassion, not just, not just a drive-by, not just dropping some change on the guy, not just saying the prayers he passed by, but to generally stop and exercise compassion was the most unnatural thing that he could have done given the context of his culture. And so for some of you, that's exactly what compassion is going to require you to do. It's to do something that's not natural. You may have grown up a home. You say, you know what? My whole childhood growing up, I never heard I love you. And so it's hard for me to say that to my kids. 
Or you may have grown up in a home that was so, such little affection that the idea of affection is so incredibly awkward for you, like, like giving your, you know, someone a hug or a kiss or, or just you know, express it. It's just so unnatural for you. But hear me this morning. Compassion moves me to do things that aren't natural for me because it benefits the other person. And can I tell you how many times I've sat across from adults with brokenness in their lives? And we get back to the root issue of what's going on in their heart. The root issue is this. Not one time in my life did I ever hear I love you. Not one time in my life did I ever hear I'm proud of you. And so can we all disagree this morning that compassion makes an incredible difference in the people in our circle of influence. And the lack of compassion when it's absent, when it's supposed to be there. And it's not there. Listen, it shapes us in a negative way. For some people, they never recover from that. That for some people, you just say, well, it's just the way I was brought up. It's just the way that I am. I'm not an emotional person. And it would be so awkward for me to extend compassion to the people in my house. Matter of fact, it's so awkward that it would be painful. Let me tell you what's more painful. It's to look back on your life one day and realize that you never told the people you loved how you really felt. It's to stand before a casket and say, I wish I had one more chance to hug that person, to kiss their cheek, to let them know how I felt about them. Listen, that's painful. Yes, it's awkward. Listen, I get it for some of you. Like if you start, if you flip that switch and said, you know what, gosh, that's not me, but that needs to be me. It's not natural for me, but compassion moves me beyond what's natural. And I'm going to start doing this. And some of you, like your, your family would look at you and go, who are you? And what'd you do with our mom, dad, you know, whoever the case is, right? Like it would be that unnatural uh, in the context. But hear me this morning. Compassion doesn't leave me where I'm comfortable. Compassion doesn't leave me on what's convenient. Compassion doesn't leave me in a place that comes natural to me. It grips my heart and moves me. Not what's best or easiest or most natural for me. It's what's best for that other person. And so compassion requires a willingness to do something that does not come natural. And I get that. Listen, for some of you, it's the most awkward thing for you to express affection. It's the most unnatural thing. You didn't grow up in that kind of house. You didn't grow up raised that way. All those things. Hear me this morning. Trust me, as a person who spends so much of his life counseling with people, hear me this morning. You cannot neglect compassion. It's the one thing you must do in your family. And so compassion moves me to do things that aren't natural. Secondly, we're going to look in this in this passage here. Compassion also requires a willingness to sacrifice on their behalf. A willingness to sacrifice. In other words, it's not just enough to go. I, I see that need could be a tangible need. I see that emotional need that you have. But in order to meet that need tangibly, practically, in order to meet that need emotionally, it's going to require something of myself that I'm just not sure I'm ready to give. Listen, when compassion gets a hold of your heart, there's a willingness to sacrifice that knows no limits. Not because it's easy, not because it doesn't cost you much, but because it's for the betterment of that person. And compassion will not let me put the brakes on that. Look at verse 34. Did it cost him something? Of course it did. Every act of compassion always costs the giver. But it's a worthy investment. Look at verse 34. And so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So it cost this guy some money. It cost him some expense, you know, some oil and some wine. It cost him something he had paid money for. It says he put him on his own animal, right? So in our equivalent, listen, kind of, kind of put him in his car, cost him something. Took him to the inn and told the innkeeper, say, hey, listen, take care of this guy. And if it's not enough, here's the money that he needs to be taken care of. And if it's not enough, listen, when I come back through town, I'll settle up. You just whatever he needs, it's going to cost some money. You know what else it cost him? Cost the most valuable commodity 
in every culture. You say, I thought money was, listen, the most valuable commodity in every culture is time. It's time. You see, I can always get more money. I can never get more time. And time is always spent and never earned. Just the opposite of money, right? And so how do we know that it costs him some time? Look, keep reading. Look at verse 35, what it says. On the next day when he departed. Do you get that? On the next day. You see, this guy just didn't walk in and throw down some money and say, I've got some disposable income. And yes, it's going to cost me. I might have had some plans for that. And so, but here's the money. If this guy needs anything, let me know. No, no, no. This guy was on his way to somewhere. He was journeying somewhere. And now he sacrificed, took some money out of his pocket and said, hey, put this guy up for the night. Listen, it says he stayed overnight with the guy. Like he just said, I'm going to stay. That's not enough for me. I can't. My heart won't let me wonder. Is he going to make it? Is he not going to make it? Is he going to recover? Is it going to be okay? So he ruined his plans, sacrificed his plans and stayed overnight just to make sure this guy was going to be okay. And so compassion requires sacrifice. And it may be maybe money. But hear me this morning. Now, this is Mother's Day. But let me just hear me this morning. Mom and dad, I promise you, I promise you that your children Need your time more than your money. I promise you, listen, they can go get a loan for money. They can't go borrow a new mom and dad. And time is the most valuable commodity that so many times in our, our lives, we're just not willing to slow down that vacation we could have took or that little surprise trip where we just picked them up at school and said, hey, let's go do this. But we just weren't willing to, to take off work. Or our schedules get so overwhelmed they were just not willing to sacrifice any time to, to squeeze in you know, something that just something simple, just something simple. But compassion requires an emotional investment and emotional investment is deepened only in the context of time. Look at the people in this parable. I mean, the thieves walked by and saw this guy and said, what's yours is mine. And I'm going to take it. The priest and Levite walked by and said, what's mine is mine. And I'm going to keep it. My time, I'm not giving it to you. The good Samaritan walked by and said, what's mine is yours and I'm going to give it. And listen, mom and dad, if there's one thing you have that you have to give, it's time. Why? Because that's when compassion shows up. Just, just pouring out those time, carving out those memories, doing those little things, that not expensive things, just spending time with someone else. James Dobson, founder of Focus on the Family, they asked him, they said, what was the most influential thing that happened to you as a child? Like, if you could go back and say, hey, this one thing happened, man, it just shaped me. It was powerful in my life and it had an incredible impact on me. Here's what he said. He said, that's easy. He said, the most shaping thing in my life was this. He said, it's when my dad came off the road as a traveling evangelist. He said, my dad was evangelist. He was incredibly successful. He was preaching all over the country. He was being booked all over the place. God, God was using him in an incredible way. He said, but one day I got to a certain age where my mom realized I needed my dad there. He said, so my mom picked up the phone and she called him. And here's all she said. She said, we need you at home. He said, but I didn't ask any questions. He said, I'll be right there. Finished up his meeting, walked home, resigned from full-time evangelism from that point forward. Got another profession, got some, some other way to make money and, and take care of his family. James Dobson said this. He said, it was at that point I knew that I was more important than my dad's career. And it impacted me to this day. You see, compassion requires me to sacrifice for the betterment of the other person. And it may be money and it may be time and it may be sacrificing what feels natural for me. But compassion always moves me to sacrifice on behalf of the other person. Now, now, now here's the question. Here's the question. Why is compassion so crucial? I mean, why is it like the one thing we, we must do? Why, why is it so crucial? That's a fair question. Here's the answer. 
because compassion is the tangible representation of God's love to those around us. It's the tangible representation of God's love around us. Look at verse 27. What did he say? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all of your mind. How do you know that's happening? How do you know? Because here's the overflow of that. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, that if God is filling up my life with love, the over the tangible overflow of that is the who's my neighbor? It's people in my circle of influence. That the tangible overflow of that, the tangible representation of God's love is the acts of genuine compassion towards the people God has placed in my circle of influence. And I cannot tell you how many times I've sat across from broken people who grew up in church. And here's what they told me, Pastor, I grew up in church week after week after week. And what I heard was there's a God who loves you unconditionally. There's a God who loves you unconditionally. There's a God who loves you unconditionally. But at home, I saw parents where that was not the case. But in my house, love was about performance. Love was about, uh, pray, you know, all these kinds of things. And yes, I heard it, but I never experienced it. And so therefore, I'm bitter at the church and I'm just going to kind of walk away from it. You know what solves that? Compassion. You know what solves that? Is to look and say, you know what? The God we hear about, we modeled his love for each other at home. Listen, I know that life can get crazy. Listen, I know that tempers can flare. Uh, I've got four kids. I get it. All right. Like there are times they push my buttons. I'm thinking, oh, I didn't know I could get that angry. And so, but, but listen, at the end of the day, they walk away and say, oh, my parents got frustrated. Or there's a little dysfunction. Going, Let me let you know a secret. There's dysfunction in every family, so I realized. Do you know that? Look around you this morning. There's some jacked up people in here. Amen. And you're looking at one. Listen, our, our house can get out of whack the same as your house. I've got four kids. Twelve, ten, six and buck wild. I and mean, that's that right. And so listen, things can get squirrely. I mean, like that in my house, tempers can flare, frustration. Listen, but at the end of the day, the overriding thing is, say, you know what? It wasn't always perfect. Uh, it was a little bit dysfunctional. If we were quite honest about it. But at the end of the day, my mom and my dad loved me unconditionally. They experienced compassion in my house. And growing up, the safest place was my house. It's that important. It's that crucial. It's that powerful. It's that shaping. When it's there, it changes a person. When it's not there, and it should be, it changes them for the worse. There's brokenness in their lives. So it's that crucial. So why don't we get there often? Like, like what, what happens? Like, I get that this, this, this act of compassion changed this guy's life. I get that. And I get that it could change someone else's life. And I get that, you know, some of you would say, you know, I grew up in a home where there's very little compassion. It was all about performance and making me look good and all those kinds of things. And boy, there's some bitterness and it's resentment. So I get it. The compassion is powerful, both in the positive and the negative. So why don't we get there often when we know it's so important? All right. I'm not going to solve every problem here this morning, but I just want to walk quickly through three compassion killers, three things that will crowd out compassion in your life and in your home. Three quick practical things. Number one, compassion killer number one, pace of life. Pace of life. Like my schedule is so swamped and so many extracurriculars and there's so much going on that, that I don't have time to, the, to carve out the time to, to write that note to put in their lunchbox. Like, yes, I know I probably should stop and get my wife a gift, but I'm so busy and I've got so much going on that, that you know, this is this whole pace of life. Listen to Galatians chapter six, verse 10. It says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Now, now here's my experience. 
My experience is that for most people, they enjoy doing good to all people, right? Like they love to bless people. They love to encourage people. They want to be that person that when they walk in the room, everybody's glad they're there, not sad. Those Right. So what's the problem? The problem is the first part. It's the opportunity that our lives are going at such a pace that we don't even we don't even see the opportunity because it's just. And it's gone. Let me tell you how, how I know that's true. That opportunity goes by like that. How many of you have ever said or heard a parent who's raised their kids say this? Enjoy it while you can, because it'll be gone before you know it. Anybody ever heard that or said that? Anybody's a younger, right? Like, listen, you know what you said when people told you that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it, I get it, I get it. You know what people tell me that? I'm like, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it right? But life is so busy. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And like all those opportunities that, you know, that I could have used to you know, just do small things. Listen, I'm not talking about, you know, you know but if you love your kids, you're going to take them to Hawaii for three weeks. Right. I'm not I'm not talking about that. Taking a walk, going to get an ice cream, writing a note. The surprise, picking them up from school a half day early, just to surprise and say, hey, we're going to go here. Of just small acts of compassion consistently over a long period of time have an incredible influence. Pace of life crowds that out. And so our pace of life causes our opportunities to do good to all people end up being nothing but good intentions. I mean, talk about opportunities to do good. Look at verse 31, 32. This guy's been beaten. He's left half dead is what verse 30 says. 31. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down the road. and When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, listen, that's what everybody who's wounded wants to see a preacher walking toward him, right? Like, at least that's what I think. <laughs> like, oh, oh my God, here comes this priest, right? Look at verse 32. But then likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked, and he passed by on the other side. Now, in the original Greek language here, he uses a verb that gives us a better idea of what takes place. Because when I read that in English translation, what I think is happening is this. This guy. Did I blow up? No. I'm busy. I've got to get to the temple. I've got religious duties to do. I've got all this church work going on. And so I really love to help that guy. I see him. I see him. But I'm just going to keep walking. No, no, no. In the original Greek language, it's, it, here's the idea. They actually saw him and turn and went in the other direction. That's actually what happened there, according to the original Greek language. They turned and went in the other direction. Why? Because they had so much going on. They had such duties at the temple. They were so busy with their religious activities that they weren't willing to slow down their pace of life. To extend compassion to someone that needs it. And we're oftentimes the same way. Too rushed to ride bikes. Too rushed to catch fireflies. Too rushed just to sit and watch a movie. Oh, last night was just a, a highlight night for me at my house. Uh, last night, uh, my son and I sat in our basement. We got a TV down there in our, our basement. We sat in the basement and for two hours, totally uninterrupted, uh, my 10-year-old son, I, this is his first time, my 1,000th time, I think, we watched the movie Hoosiers together. Amen. Gift of God. That's what Hoosiers means in Greek. Gift of God. That's what it means. All right. Just trust me. I've watched that movie 200 times, I bet. I said, Ethan, my favorite movies. Come on. What is it? I said, let's go down and watch it. So if you know, I switched thinking, that's the best movie I've ever seen. I said, amen. Favor of God's on you, son. Amen. I said, go up and tell your mom we just watched the greatest movie ever. Sports movie ever. So he goes up and tells his mom, we watched the greatest sports movie ever. My wife, my wife cheerleader, hold, hold. she said, oh, did you guys watch Bring It On? I'm like, blasphemy! Blasphemy! She slept outside last night. It was cold. Pray for her. 
Listen, you know what I normally do during that time on Saturday nights? I normally look over my sermon notes like for something to be ready on Sunday morning. I, I just I didn't do it. And so if it stinks this morning, you're welcome. All right. And if I had to do over again, I'd do the same thing. I, w- I wouldn't trade that time with him last night in the basement for anything. But sometimes those good intentions and I listen, I don't always get it right. I'm like every other pastor. I'm busy and you know, just listen, but listen, don't let the course of your life say, you know what? We had a lot of good intentions. But that's where they stayed. Pace of life kills compassion. Number two, perfectionism, perfectionism. Nothing kills compassion like the condemning stare of a perfectionistic parent who looks with critical eyes. Perfectionistic, perfectionistic parents create a culture where love is earned, not freely given. Performance, not grace, is the key to acceptance in that house. Let me tell you three marks of life within the prison of perfectionism. Number one, the perfectionistic parent is never satisfied. You got C's, you should have got B's. You got B's, you should have got A's. You made the team, you shouldn't have sat the bench. You, you played, you started, you should have made all-stars. You made all-stars, you should have been the MVP. You made the second chair, you should have played in the first chair. You get the idea? Perfectionist parent is never satisfied. Number two, the perfectionist parent is critical and constantly compares. Oh, why can't you be more like your brother? Listen, my siblings heard that all the time growing up. I just, I pray for them. I just, that's totally not true. Like, like I've joked before, like, what was it like growing up in Jesus' house? Because they had siblings, right? You know, can you imagine Jesus' parents? James, I don't know what's wrong with you. Jesus never leaves a seat up. Jesus eats all his vegetables, Right? Like it was a real house with real stuff. I don't know. Listen, I don't know. Perfectionistic parent is critical and constantly compares. Your, your, your sister is so, so smart. Your brother is so athletic. Your sister is so pretty. Perfectionistic parent sets impossible goals. They set impossible goals. Let me tell you what else about goals with perfectionistic parents. They recognize the goals that have not been met without affirming the ones that have. Have you noticed that? Like it's, hey, here, like, hey, you did this one thing. You got, you got an A on your report card. Yeah, you also got four B's. What happened? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's the house you grew up in. Perfectionism is a past compassion killer. Model grace for your kids. Accept your kids on grace because that's how God accepts you in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.6 says to the praise and glory of His grace by which He has made us accepted. Mom and Dad, do not deny the value and the power in that word accepted. How does God accept us? Ephesians 1, 6 says, by His grace. How do you accept your kids? By their grace, not their performance. Compassion killer number three. Valuing countenance over character. Countenance is a, is a word the Bible uses to talk about the outer appearance or the beauty of someone. Their countenance. Valuing countenance over character. Let me speak directly to mothers of girls. We're almost done. If you're raising girls still, we've got granddaughters. Make sure the only praise they don't hear is solely for their countenance. Let me tell you why that's so crucial. Because if the only praise they receive is for their appearance, then they'll recognize that that, that the vehicle for your affection is the way they look. And if they don't, they're not receiving affection, they're not receiving praise, it just naturally causes them to wonder, do I not look pretty? Do I not look, look? Now listen, I've got three girls I'm raising. I've got four girls in my house. All the time, you look so pretty, you look so cute. Listen, I'm not saying not that. I'm just saying make sure that you compliment them more for their character as opposed to their countenance. Because their character is where their beauty comes from God, not their countenance. 
Proverbs chapter 31, like you're going to preach on Mother's Day. That's like the key passage, right? Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman, the woman that got the, the perfect woman from God's perspective. Not a single mention of her countenance, all about her character. Valuing countenance over character. You can't do it all. You're an imperfect parent. But here's the good news. It's not all worth doing. But the one thing you must do is compassion. Let me just close with a story that illustrates how powerful this truth is. I might have shared a couple years ago, so forgive me if it's a repeat, but it certainly is a powerful reminder. True story. James Dobson was writing about the impact of fathers who were never involved in the lives of young men. In order to illustrate his point, he told the story of a card writing campaign that was sponsored by Hallmark greeting cards at a maximum security prison. And on Father's Day, representatives from Hallmark brought in literally thousands of free Father's Day cards for the inmates to mail their fathers. So they set up all these tables, literally thousands of cards out there. Hallmark said, hey, listen, the cards on us, the envelopes on us. The prison said this is so important uh, that we're going to give you the stamps. It's totally free. Listen, guys, come out. Free Father's Day card on Father's Day. Write it out. We've got it all set up. It's all organized. Here's the time they're coming out. Here's what we're going to do. This is Right? So they got it all set up. Announced we're going to do this. And they waited. And they waited. And they waited. Not a single inmate showed up. Not one. You say, where in the world did they get such a dumb idea? They got it from Mother's Day. You see, just the month before, Hallmark did the exact same thing. Ten minutes into it, they have to go back to the factory and triple the amount of cards they brought for the moms. They were just dumbfounded. And so finally, one of the guards asked one of the hardened inmates, he said, what's the deal? Here's what he said. He said, most of us in here, the only person who ever showed us any compassion was our mom. You see, even the hardest of hearts is no match for compassion. It's that powerful. Moms, you may not be able to throw a Pinterest worthy party. It's okay. You may not feed your kids all organic food that you grew in your greenhouse that you built from scratch with popsicle sticks and hot glue guns like the mom down the street. It's okay. You may not be raising the next Einstein, LeBron, or Beethoven. It's okay. There may be some days that eating cereal for dinner is a huge win. It's okay. You may not be able to stay home during the season, although you'd love to. It's okay. You see, you can't do it all. But the good news is it's not all worth doing. But the one thing you must do is compassion. Compassion costs very little monetarily, but its value cannot be measured. We invite you to bow your heads this morning if you would.